There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Welcome to the Varsity Club podcast. Joining us this week, I just don't even... I was going to say something nice about you, and then I looked at your shirt, and I... Oh, you hadn't noticed. I mean, I had noticed the shirt, but I just, like, I hadn't, I hadn't actually paid attention to it until just now. Yeah, I mean, one of the, like, you're just, one of the hands is just holding up an L. Like, you know that, right? Like, one of the hands on your shirt is just holding up an L. Yeah, but that's for the L in Los Angeles. But it's still an L. But it's also adorned with championship rings. 2000 and 2001 talk about living in the past greg smith is here with us uh he's got his welcome to la shirt on uh with a hand forming an l because the lakers constantly take l's and another hand forming an a with a bunch of rings on it he's got his lakers hat on and i wore oh sorry purple adidas are those alpha bounces they are alpha bounces. nice purple adidas shoes i have my thunder stuff on to show greg that i am not afraid of his Lakers, even though my Thunder got trashed. You should be afraid. <laughs> by the LeBron-less Lakers. God, that was so sad. We are recording on a Friday afternoon. It is, uh, I don't think it's snowing outside right now, but there is a lot of ice. And I'm definitely going to fall down the stairs uh, when I leave our office. because Strong it's, chance. It, yeah, it's, it's slippery. I fell, I tripped three times at the men's basketball game last night. I don't know if you saw my tweet. I did see the tweet, and I laughed very hard. I, got, I couldn't even think of something funny to say back to you. I laughed so hard. I got new shoes, but I didn't <laughs> realize when I bought them that the toe was so much longer than any pair of shoes I've yeah. ever owned before. They're Italian style, okay. so the toe is elongated. I did not have enough time to compensate. Like, I did not give myself enough wear so time to, to, yeah, to figure out how to compensate for that. No, that was the first time I had worn those shoes out in public. And I tripped going up the stairs three separate times. Wow. That's like, rough, man. It was rough. Yeah. It was rough. We're going to talk a little bit of Nebraska ball at the end. They had a, a game against Michigan State that we should probably talk about. But Greg Smith is here, which means uh, let's talk about football and let's talk about recruiting. The first thing I want to talk to you about is something that isn't necessarily Nebraska-related, but, oh. I mean, they, they do have a quarterback in the transfer portal. Um, yeah. Andrew Bunch entered the transfer portal. You said he's back? Is that reporting or is that... You oh man, are you going to be on the spot? I'm sure I will report it on this podcast okay. that Andrew Bunch is going to come back. Okay, I like him, but <laughs> so I, I want to talk about transfer quarterbacks in general because there's been a bunch of movement this off season, and the most recent, like over this past week, the the two most recent ones, I think represent the fear that everybody has with kind of looser transfer. Regulations. So, like, Jalen Hurts goes to Oklahoma. Oklahoma still blocks Austin Kendall from going to West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then there's huge public outcry <laughs> huge. over it. Yeah. Oklahoma reverses course and says, okay, no, fine, you can go to West Virginia. Austin Kendall goes to West Virginia. The first, like, why do programs keep doing this? Why do you keep, why do programs keep blocking dudes and transfers and then it gets out into the public, and the public gets mad, and then the team is like, okay, fine, we'll let you transfer. Just let him transfer in the first place. It's going to get out. I think they're so used to being able to – college programs and teams and coaches, head coaches, are so used to holding all of the power and not being questioned that there are still times where people hold on to that and – have not adjusted fully, and I think that was one of those times. Like, I like, and because in previous years, even say three years ago, um, not even very long ago, like that would have been accepted and people would have just moved on. Um, now you have a situation where social media, and it's not just it's weird because you can say that coaches and coaches say this all the time, even though they're mostly not telling the truth, they don't pay attention to what's said on social media or in the newspaper or anything. It wasn't just that it was fans of, say, West Virginia that were upset it about was that. Nash- it was 
social media. It was everyone. Yeah, yeah, it was it was everyone that was like, okay, we, there's a little bit of hypocr- hypocrisy here that you went out and signed basically a free agent quarterback yeah. in Jalen Hurts, and then you decide to turn around and then block the guy or leaving your school from the school that he wants to go to. Um, it just seemed a little petty. So yeah. they reversed course. Thankfully, that was the right thing. But, yes, they should have done it correctly in the first place. And you made a good point there. And one of – I mean, there was – the exact same thing happened with Kansas State, too, who blocked Alex Delton from going to TCU mm-hmm. it, on a lower profile. But the exact same thing happened second year in a row. Kansas State has blocked a kid, and then there's been uh, – upset people and they're kind of notorious for doing stuff like this though right like they're they're a little bit behind like kansas state now even though they're changing of the guard now with a new coach but i feel like they're always in the news for doing something like this but you made a good point power for so long was with coaches and programs and now power has kind of shifted and the players can do what they want like Austin Kendall wanted to go to West Virginia, and Austin Kendall was going to West Virginia. Now, they shouldn't have blocked him. He graduated from there. He was a good student athlete, and they kept bringing in transfers to replace him. So, like, he was justified in wanting to leave that place. But he wanted to go to West Virginia, and he ended up getting to West Virginia. Jalen Hurts wanted to go to Oklahoma. He got there. Kelly Bryant wanted to go to Missouri. He got there. Like, players now, the transfer— I I was talking to my brother about this. I I think we're moving towards— a, a legitimate free agency with college football. But I don't know how that works because of amateurism. Like, there's not, like, like, how, like let's say you get a kid at Central Florida, Mackenzie Milton, mm-hmm. who doesn't have a ton of Power 5 offers coming out, does really, really well his first year at Central Florida, and then all these Power 5 teams come in and are like, okay, we want you to come play for us now. And it's like you spend one year at these schools, and then you jump to a power five school, jump to a really big school. Like, how do you feel about this environment? Because it's becoming, like, I want to say looser, but, like, it's becoming the norm now. And this offseason has really pushed that, that guys are going to transfer and guys are not going to stick very long. And especially quarterbacks, they're going to move around and you're not really going to have more than one really, really good quarterback on your roster at one time. You know what I was thinking when you were laying out that situation, that, you know, fictitious situation about Mackenzie Milton? Isn't that, couldn't you have just replaced Mackenzie Milton with Scott Frost? Like, if you had said, if you just say, hey, you know, schools at the, say, group of five level are worried about losing their coaches after one or two good seasons to big time schools in the Big Ten or the ACC or the SEC or the Pac 12. Like, I feel like that happens in coaching and it's accepted. But because, again, of the power dynamics, people Mm -hmm. don't want to see that with players because the people that are in power now, the coaches, the schools, the administrators, don't want to cede anything to players. No. And so it feels like it's so crazy to even think that Mackenzie Milton could do that if he wanted to, or not even that situation, but Justin Fields and the Mm -hmm. situation that he was in at Georgia, um, though I don't understand why he didn't see that coming. Um, And then he goes to Ohio State uh, or, you know, the Jalen. Hurts when they're all a little bit unique, um, but I just feel like the power dynamic has been so tilted away from the players that now that it's going a little bit in the players' direction, folks are all up in arms. Like I'm not saying you were, but like just in general, I, that's my read on the situation is that people are just so not used to seeing the players have any sort of freedom whatsoever. Um, because I don't think that it like does it does it ultimately hurt the sport at all that all of this quarterback movement has happened. I think it makes it it makes it harder to build teams. But does and it only make teams? It, but I don't think it hurts the product. But also okay, yeah, I'm with you, but does it only really make it harder to build and sustain teams at the quarterback position? Because no one's bringing this up as it relates to running backs or cornerbacks or you know anything well, but, I- anything else because of the importance of the quarterback position and I get that yeah. but it just it feels like it's so like most everything else it's so quarterback driven and focused on what the quarterbacks are doing I think it's just because like like let's use Nebraska for an example we are a Nebraska podcast after all <laughs> we are Adrian Martinez is going to play 99.9% of the snaps hmm? you're just like like when Luke McCaffrey gets here, he's not going to play quarterback until Adrian Martinez is gone. Right. But if you've got a running back, like next year, Maurice Washington could play. Wino Robinson could play running back. You could get, like, maybe Jalen Bradley gets some touches at running back. Dedrick Mills could get touches at running back. Like, you can have guys at 
every other, literally every other position in a rotation or multiple guys on the depth chart can play snaps. Quarterback is so unique that if you have a good one, no one else behind him is going to play. But at the same time, you have to have multiple guys. You do, and we've seen because, that over and over exactly, again. Exactly, exactly the situation yeah. that Nebraska was in last yep. year where they had Adrian Martinez, and then behind him there was there was no proven talent, and there was nobody that the coaching staff was truly comfortable with. Like they, they would probably say that they were fine putting Andrew Bunch in there, but I don't think deep down they were truly, truly comfortable. I think we saw that with the play calling against Troy. Yes. So, yeah. and, but like – you need those guys, but you can't have... So Nebraska, to me, is going to be very, very fascinating from that standpoint over the next four years because they've got Luke McCaffrey coming in. You've got Noah Bedrill here already. You've got Logan Smothers coming in the following class. Mm-hmm. How do all of those guys... Not, I, don't, I don't see all of those guys staying here. The other thing... The, the other portion of this and what's really unknown to everyone is... So to pay, take it back to the Justin Fields situation... What was Kirby Smart selling to Justin Fields during that recruiting process, right? And this is not like a knock on them. But if they were saying, hey, you're going to come in and compete, and even if you don't win the job, you're such an elite talent that we're going to work this special package of plays for you. What if they said that? He got there, did not win the starting job. He didn't. And then that special package of plays was really like him going in and running the ball three or four times a game and then that random fake punt thing that they did against Alabama. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that – I say that to say I think that your expectations that you set during the recruiting process has a large deal to do with how some of these earlier transfers end up working out. The grad transfers are a totally different situation. Um, but so and, I, and so knowing that the staff has not necessarily said to Luke McCaffrey, hey, you're going to come in here and compete with Adrian Martinez. And even if you lose, even if you lose that job, we're going to have this special um, package plays for you. I'm like... 99% sure that that did not happen um, during Luke's uh, recruitment. So his expectations coming in are much different than, say, Justin Fields were when they were coming in. And it all goes back to being honest with kids during the recruiting process. And that will help you some. It's not going to alleviate all of them because you're all, you're just going to have guys kind of go rogue and do their own thing, see Greg Bell. Um, but it will help in the process. So, so you – like Lincoln Riley caught a lot of flack for that quote that came around mm-hmm. where he was he he told Spencer Rattler that he wasn't going after a transfer. That was specifically about Justin Fields at Georgia, and then the Jalen Hurts thing happened. But do so coaches need to be more transparent? They do with quarterbacks on the recruiting trail. Yes, yeah. but also I think that the just the the nitty gritty of that Spencer Rattler Jalen Hurts Lincoln Riley situation. I actually think football wise, I think it's a good move for Spencer Rattler. Because he doesn't have to be thrust into the situation as a true freshman. Like, even though that's helping, he's not. he may not see it that way. Um, and true freshman quarterbacks, we just saw one, are playing better as mm-hmm. they come in. Um, but it is a bad look. <laughs> I just want to say, I just say one thing yeah. about that situation specifically. They were very, there, there were very well-known concerns that they had that Rattler's size was not conducive to playing right away. Yeah. At the Power 5 level. Regardless of whatever defense they're playing week in and week out, they were concerned that he was not big enough to play Mm -hmm. as a true freshman. Those were well-known. Everybody knew that. that's a legitimate concern. Like, as much arm talent as he has. Like, that that was legitimate. They were looking for a stopgap quarterback to be there. I think think that that was a smart move. And everyone knew that. So if Spencer Rattler did not know that, it's because he just chose buried to ignore his head it. in the sand <laughs> and chose to ignore it. Okay, so the Tate Martell situation at Ohio State, he was talking all that game about oh, how man, Justin Fields was... should not come to Ohio State because he won't win the job, that Tate Martell will compete, and that Justin Fields, it would be a mistake for him to go to Ohio State. So then Justin Fields goes to Ohio State. He called this bluff. And like, Tate Martell leaves. Immediately. Like, I don't even know if Justin Fields had moved his stuff into his dorm room <laughs> before Tate Martell just pieced out of there. Is there a lack of competitive spirit within college football right now? In some cases, yes, I do believe so. And and that, I think that one was one of those situations because – Correct me if I'm wrong here. Couldn't Tate Martell have competed with him throughout the sping and mm. then transferred? Yeah. 
So, yeah, I think that there is now, there's also competitive spirit is one thing, but hurt feelings and just being a young, angry teenager are another thing too, right? That sometimes that supersedes yeah. what you, you know, should be doing competitively. And I don't um, want to paint it with a broad brush because you have cases like Divino Zigbo last Yeah, they're they all so different. Him. That's why I said they're yeah. all so different. They replaced him and he worked his butt off and he's now looking like he's going to be an NFL draft pick. Yeah. So it's not, not, not every single... School and every single position around the country is dealing with kids that don't want to compete. But at least to me, it does seem like there's a rise in kids that are like, yo, you're not using me the right way. I'm out. We yeah. saw it with Greg Bell. We are. And, and see, part of the problem, I think, though, is the maturity level. Yeah. I think that that's it. Because if you just think about it, I was pro- I would have been much more likely at 20 or 19 to make that sort of decision, which would in the long run probably have been a bad decision versus I would now, right? Like there's been, I'm glad you brought the Greg Bell situation up actually as the example, because that one I think is, will ultimately, if you ask him five years from now, I ultimately think he'll say he made a bad decision because it just does not look good for him going forward. Like I've heard nothing about what's about to happen with him. Hmm. I think to, I mean, Starting to sound like Mike Gundy a little bit with all this get off my porch things. Does this does this come back to like there's too much uh, celebrity with these kids is when they're recruits? Oh, part that's part of it probably, which is weird for me to say. Well, but like um, so, like but my like, question is: when people talk about that, when people say, "Oh, we put too much emphasis on recruiting," is that just like? Is that just like a cop out excuse, or is that like a legitimate thing? Do you think? Man, it's it's interesting because I don't. On one hand, it, man, how do I say this? It really depends because there are certain situations, and for some reason, Michael Parsons came to mind that like it was made to be a really, really big deal, and it was a really big deal when like Micah Parsons came here to visit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- throughout his whole recruitment, like he was just a really big deal recruit. But I don't know how you would stop that, given that it was a big deal. Like, that's not made up. He was a really big deal recruit. He had a he great season. He was Penn season. State's leading tackler <laughs> Which as a as, freshman. When we discovered that kind of in Slack the other day, like, I, I feel like everyone was surprised. Yeah, everyone was um, like, oh, what, really? And he, like, more than lived up to the hype, yeah. right? So those, because those situations do happen where guys live up to the hype, I don't know that it's going to slow that down. But one of the things that, like, Nick Saban has talked about before is the deprogramming of these recruits when you get them there. He would have, he would know and have to do with this more than what anybody right given how many number one classes he's had and he's talked about i think it was in his book that he said how when these guys get to campus that he almost has to deprogram them from basically the entire recruiting process where i'm kind of kissing your butt to now i've got to really coach you Mm -hmm. which then also reminds me of something that ryan held has said before which is hey we're not different on the recruiting trail than we are once we get guys here so he i think that he believes that that helps to not have that shock factor when a kid gets in like I would assume that Wandale Robinson did not all of a sudden feel much differently when he got here last week versus when they were recruiting him during the process which is a good thing because Mm -hmm. again it goes back to that setting expectations and where guys mindset is when they come into the program so many things that this staff kind of sets in place in terms of how they interact with people how they treat people and and kind of the culture that they like it's 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 a new school approach, so to speak, in the mm-hmm. coaching profession. But I think it's one that like everyone is gonna it just it just works. It's a, it's it's new school with an old school touch because one of the things that you notice in Nebraska's recruiting, for example, is that they don't seem to place a lot of emphasis on the individual. Right. Like it's it really feels like a real concerted effort that yes, we really want you to play here. But there's only so far we're going to go in, like, celebrating all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And it just feels like that's something that they're really conscious of because that's just not the culture that they want in their program. And that and that's not the bar that they want to set. But you see that at some other schools are like that. Some are not. It works for, for some others. Like Oregon, for example, is very different in how they handle all of that. Um, say Florida State is really different in how they handle all of that. Funny that they're kind of linked because of the coach. But it, it just it sets the expectation when guys get here and it's a it's a different approach in a way um, but it also has an old school touch to it my two cents on the the recruiting thing I don't think there's anything wrong with guys that cover recruiting I think and this is not like kissing up or sucking up to you or anything like that I think it's more uh, imperative that the kids realize that like 
it, it's this, it was like the same when they went from middle school to high school. Like you're an eighth grader, you're the big dog on campus, mm-hmm. and then you started as a freshman in high school, and you had right. to start from ground zero. Like you're a big dog on campus as you're as as a senior in high school. When you get to college, you're an 18 year old freshman, and there are grown sometimes 24 year old grown men yeah. who have their degree and are there to knock your teeth out. Yeah. Like you you gotta. Start from ground zero a little bit. That's my two cents on it. Which is interesting because you, I've heard essentially that from a number of Nebraska recruits, which is interesting. <laughs> like a lot of guys have mentioned like some variation of, hey, I just want to come in and work and help the team. And I want to do like even with guys like Wandale, for example, who has said openly that he wants to win the Heisman one day and Paul Horning, which is fine. Um, but he also says that I want to come in and just work and get better and see how I can help the team, which I think is kind of – I, I feel like that's on purpose. I feel like that's something that the coaching staff is looking for in their recruits. Mm-hmm. Well, Jamie Nance said something to that effect. When I was mm-hmm. with him in Oklahoma, he talked about how um, – actually, it was his mom that said this. His goal is, was to just get here and get comfortable and build chemistry with guys so that he can help, yeah. so that he can be uh, a contributor to the team, not so that he can you know have a 1,000 yards his freshman season, but so that he can be a contributor. Um, I'm glad you brought up Wandale because – the magazine, the the latest edition of Hell Varsity just came out. Um, I had a story on Jamie Nance. You had a story with Wandell Robinson. You talked to him. Just, what, what, I guess, you don't have to give the story away, but, like, takeaways of talking to him and having a, an extended talk with him after, you know, like, was he here when you talked to him or had he, he gotten here He was not. He was in San Antonio Okay, when we talked. So that was that before the All-American? Yeah, it was like Wednesday or so of that week. God, no, so, no, it was Tuesday. It was, was Tuesday so because it was game. Yeah, because it was the day after because that very first day of practice everyone was talking about him mm-hmm. and then so because I remember asking him just off because for a different story that I did on him from that about what it was like to go there get to compete um, and then be like the talk of the game or the talk of practices because it, it, one of the things that he he has like I wouldn't say like a huge chip on his shoulder but it's really fascinating because it, he's from Kentucky obviously um and people don't really recognize Kentucky as a great football state and I believe we've talked about this before I don't know if it's on Potter who was just off air about how the competition level that he faced and was like his like huge gaudy stats of you know 3000 total yards 47 I believe touchdowns last year like how much of that was a product of not playing against very good competition so when he then went to San Antonio and basically destroying everybody that first day. I really want to talk to him about that um, to see what his thoughts were. That story is on the website. That's not what we talked about um, for the the magazine. The magazine was more focused on just his entire recruiting process um, and just kind of how, like, things that he, like, kept secret (laughs) during the recruiting process, Um, like the funniest coach that he interacted with, the funniest thing that so a coach said to him, and I have to give that one away because it's my favorite thing ever, um, is that Nick Saban told him that he did not like short people, but he likes people that score touchdowns. And if you were to ever hear the audio of that, I laughed so hard and loud that I had to apologize to him Um, (laughs) because it caught me so off guard. um, And it was just, so funny um but the, his his bond like one of the really interesting things that came up um in that is that his immediate bond and love for nebraska because we, we and i know we've talked about this is that he visited everywhere else that he was considering multiple times there was not another school ohio state alabama purdue um kentucky like all of them got multiple visits from him throughout his recruiting process came to nebraska one time for a game that didn't happen. And he just instantly fell in love with the place. Like, I thought that was remarkable. And so we talked about that a little bit as well. Like, there was there was a lot of good stuff. He's a really interesting kid. Um, I think he has a really bright future on the field as well. I think he has a bright future, too. We did a roundtable discussion on the website Thursday. And one of the questions was, who's the best recruit that a Big Ten team landed? I think it's Wandale. When I was going through that and looking... Like through the, I was looking through the the two four seven top, the top two four seven. Yep, he was so much lower than I thought he was going to be. Yes, he yeah he is. If you it, yeah, is that feels like it's that feel he feels too low 
that feels like somebody's going to come back to that and say we messed up. That's it, what I'm saying. It was saying. the exact same. That exact same thing happened last year with Rondale Moore, actually. Um, where I I want to say that Rondale Moore ended up as like a middle of the road three star last year, um, and then people really had to come back and be like, oh, we missed, I, we missed that. One. I think part and he of, was at the All American game. People still missed that. I think part of it though is fit. Like, he fits yes. so well with Jeff Brom's yep. offense, and they use him in all the right ways. And my justification for why I thought Wandale Robinson was going to be, when we look back on it in four years, why he, why I think he's going to be the best recruit that was landed in this cycle for a Big Ten team, he fits, like, out, like so perfectly with Scott Frost's offense. It, it's a hand-in-glove fit. And, like, the potential for him to do stuff in this offense is huge. Like, there is legit potential for him to win a Heisman here. There is, which is super, it's super interesting because it's become basically a quarterback award. Um, but somebody's going to break that um, going forward. But the thing is, too, there are all sorts but it, of... But it would be one of those guys yes, that yes. catches and that's what balls I was say. It and would runs. Have to, yep, and it maybe return kicks and type. punts as well. Yeah. Like that, yeah, yeah, absolutely would be something like that. Yep. Anything surprise you during your talk with Wando? Um, like going back to kind of some of the Alabama stuff, it surprised me how, how he didn't mesh, it felt like with Alabama and what they had going on there. Um, and I've talked to him separately from that article about this since I feel like Nick Saban has a very particular way that he (laughs) recruits and the comment that he made kind of encapsulates that. Mm -hmm. Like, um, he's got the whole setup with like, you come in for your final meeting and he's got the coffee table full of championship rings. Um, and it's very much a, we want you, we don't need you. We'll find the next guy if you don't want to say yes type of situation. And it's not necessarily that, I think, that completely turned him off to the Alabama situation. I think it's part of it. Um, But I also thought that the offensive fit, like you were saying, um, with Alabama just didn't really mesh with what he knew. I, I thought that one of the, to me, one of the most impressive things about Wandale and his family in general is that how in tune they were with offensive fit and coaching fit throughout the process. Like that was really, because I think that I wish that more recruits did that. And it's not necessarily to benefit Nebraska or anything like that. I just wish that more people did that and evaluated fit a lot more and better um, throughout the process because it matters a lot. Fit matters with every single personnel yep. decision. Like we talk so about much. it all the time with coaching. Like it, I think it is like underappreciated when you're talking about putting players. Like we talk about this all the time when we when we have NBA discussions. We're like mm-hmm. this guy doesn't fit with this lineup. You talk about it all the time with Brandon Ingram. <laughs> oh, um, <boy. laughs> yes, yes, I do all the time. This uh, this class is rapidly filling up. Uh, and you've got some notes in front of you. When is the February signing day? February sixth. Okay, so we're we're quickly approaching that we too. Are. Like, what is what is a, a close to this class looking like? It it looks strong. It looks like, and I wrote this in in Big Red Recon, I believe, this morning. Is that it feels a lot like the close during. Uh, going into the early signing period, right, where we had a, an idea that there were some guys that were going to commit, say your Ty Robinsons and Brant Banks, uh, Jimmy Fritschke, like it just felt like that those things were going to happen. Um, and actually, Fritschke, I guess, was the most up in the air going into the day. But it kind of feels like that again. It feels like we're building towards that again, where once we get to February 6th, um, I'll probably have a really good understanding or a hundred percent understanding of what's going to happen in the class. And there won't be this mad dash scramble at the end of the cycle to figure this out. And in fact, I think that this was planned all along like this. And this is what the staff wanted to begin with, because that's why they put that junior day on February 2nd, which is the Saturday of the last visit weekend. You don't do that if you're not feeling good or if your plan is to not have the hay in the barn before then, and you're not scrambling to fill your 2019 needs. Um, So that's a great sign for how this class is going to end and a really good sign that they'll land some of their top targets targets um, that they want to close this class with. How many spots do they have left? So right now they have 25 guys committed. 24 of them are signed. Obviously Desmond Bland is the only one that's not signed. I said throughout the entire process, I'm mean, consistent here that they're going to sign 30 guys in this class. Um, so if you don't count Desmond Bland 
but you have to include Damien or Darian Daniels, they'd have five spots remaining in the class. The Desmond Bland situation just doesn't look good. Sorry, I skipped over that. Um, so they'd have five spots. You got to take one of those spots away for Noah Polo Gates, who announces tomorrow. Like he's a must take if he wants in um, tomorrow. Um, and then you have four spots remaining. And that's where it gets super interesting because there's a number of targets. You had four official visitors last week. You have two this week. You'll probably still have a couple of more the next couple of weeks. Um, there are not a lot of spots left in this class. Four is what I basically have it in if, if you count Noah Pola Gates as someone who's committed um, just for the sake of the argument. Um, it, it's going to be tight. Because there's a couple of guys that they really, really want, like Charles and Joko and Stephen Parker. Okay, that was my <laughs> next question because we we had a, I, I think it was the mailbag. Somebody asked us on Wednesday, like if you can only take one, Noah Pola Gates, Charles and Joku, or whoever the third person was. I, don't I forget remember. who the third person was because uh, like, it wasn't Stephen Parker. Yeah, if you can only take one, who would you take? And you said Noah Pola Gates, and I said Joku just because of fit again. Yeah. Um, if. Pola Gates is in mm-hmm. Saturday. He announces Saturday during the Polynesian Bowl. Yep. If he's in, who is the next must take guy that they have on their board? Charles Njoku. Okay. It would be the, yeah. Charles Njoku would be the next guy because they they really really like him. Okay. It, a lot. What what I mean with four spots left, is it high school only are they looking at a juco guy or are they looking at another grad transfer because currently right now they've only got one grad transfer in Brian right. daniels and it was thought all through a lot of the process it was thought that nebraska would be like heavily in the grad transfer market mm-hmm. and i think that they did heavily look but to me it sounds like at this point they're going to wait until after spring ball to reevaluate bringing in grad transfers okay i think that i think right now grad transfer is capped where they are um and then we're looking at well, it's not all high school because uh, Sonny Fanoa, who visited last week, who really enjoyed his visit, um, his brother actually told him to shut it down <laughs> during his interview, um, is he's, he's a junior college defensive end slash outside linebacker um, that could very well end up being part of the class. But it, it but then if he's a part of the class and Stephen Parker wants in, do you take them both plus Njoku, who they really want? And then that's right there, boom, three spots of the four have taken away. So it gets really tough on how they make that decision. But let me say, as someone who's been like covering and following Nebraska recruiting for a while, this is very new for Nebraska at the end. Like it is typically not like this. It is not who is who are we actually going to take. It's more of man, who can we actually find to fill these spots because we're having a hard time. This is a, a very welcome addition or change. And bodes very well for the future of Nebraska recruiting. So the last question that I have for you on this topic, why can they take 30? The max is 25, is it not? Yes. but Explain they can, why they can take 30. Yeah, so you can count back, what's called count back, guys from a, pre, from a previous class if they're early enrollees. So basically, like, the, the easy version thing of it is, like, Adrian Martinez and those guys last year were able to be counted back for the previous recruiting cycle. Um, and then, so, that therefore, you end up loosening up the spots in that current class, and then you can do it again with the guys that come in the next year. Um, so it gets really tricky, but you can count those guys back. Um, the, the number now that Nebraska fans need to really be aware of is 88. That's the amount of scholarships that the per Big Ten oversigning rules, you can be at 88 scholarships, three over the limit on National Signing Day. You just have to provide the Big Ten with a plan as to how you're going to get under um, the scholarship limit. Um, but it never seems like anything actually happens. Ohio State has been doing this for years, um, so it never really seems like there's any penalty to it. And Nebraska, I believe, did it last year, um, which is also a new thing. Nebraska, had, and a lot of Husker fans will hear this and like to shake their fist because a lot of them described it as self-imposed scholarship restrictions where they weren't even getting close to the 85. They'd go in 78, 79 um, scholarship players in a season, and it's just not a smart way to operate 
your team, but it also happens um, when you're not filling your classes because you're not hitting your, like actually securing your targets, which the staff does not seem like it, it will have trouble doing. So what was the issue then with the last staff? Was it, it was the last two staffs? Was like it both of them. going after unattainable targets? So that is part of it. It's it's going at when you go after targets that are going to be really difficult to get, your Micah Parsons of the world, um, but you do not then do enough work on that next layer of guys, like that next tier down, that's how you end up in that situation. Like people laugh now when like, you know, Nebraska's recruiting, say, Stephen Parker at outside linebacker, but they're also recruiting Sonny Fanoa, but they're also recruiting Mike Lockhart, but also Dylan Jordan from Kansas. And then also there's a new name that I put in Big Red Recon today. So that's what I just named off like that five guys that they're recruiting at outside linebacker for one spot with only a couple of weeks left in the cycle. They will not be caught just holding the bag without, like, and that is new. Like, it sounds like it's common sense, but that's not what was happening um, over the last two coaching staff. So it's good on Frost and his staff for doing that. When you frame it that way, it looks like, oh, my gosh, the staff is so much better than what they've had. When you look at it, mm-hmm. you personally, how does this staff compare to other staffs in the Big Ten in terms of how they approach recruiting and how they how they – Go about handling this. It see like to me, somebody that is on the outside looking. It seems like they're doing a really, really good job. The plan is there. They're executing mm-hmm. the plan. They're not missing. You wrote a story about that in the magazine as it well. Is. They're not missing on targets. They like, are not. How does how does this compare to, I guess, other sta- coaching staffs around the Big Ten? Yeah, I, I think the thing is. The, to me, the biggest deal and the biggest thing that this staff realizes is that Nebraska is a unique place to recruit to and to have to draw talent, right? It is different from Ohio State, which is in a uh, more talent-rich state than it is from Penn State, which also has you know, five more 500-mile radius talent, or Michigan. It's not like it was in Central Florida or what it would have been at Florida, right? Um, and I think that they understand that and try to embrace that and that they want to be known as a recruiting staff that evaluates the most players in the country. Like that's a quote. <laughs> um, so what they so the reason why you see so many offers go out is because they know, and I think it was like three hundred and twenty some offers that went out, which was I think the second most yeah, they were in, in the, the entire three, country. I think. I think them in Iowa State, and I can't think of the other one offhand that was way up there. But that's on purpose because they know that they have to cast a wide net because they don't have a they don't have enough talent locally to just draw completely from. Like say a Clemson would be able to now that they they're spreading, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so recognizing that, embracing it, having a plan to attack it, um, I think is what separates them from other staffs around the conference. Um, but also it's, it's interesting because Nebraska, when they get guys here, and I feel like we're always saying this, when they get guys on campus, they're blown away by what they see and how different it is just in the city of Lincoln and also with the facilities and what's going on here and the passion for football that's the next step. You didn't ask me that, but that's the next step is having guys from say Alabama or Georgia where they recruit a lot right now coming into these visits and coming into being recruited by Nebraska, knowing that Nebraska is a special place. Because once they do that and they don't have to go from, say, like a one or a two familiarity with the program and they can start off with say a six or a seven and then push it up over the top, that'll actually really help. I think reaching that next step is a lot of winning on-field product. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I also think the thing that separates this staff from recent Nebraska staffs is the emphasis on the in-state kids. Uh, because I, I feel like if this staff was recruiting like Noah Fant, he probably doesn't leave. Or recruiting like Bryson Williams, he probably doesn't leave. Like getting the five D1 kids out of this state all here. It was pretty impressive. It was a huge deal. Yeah. Like, and it's funny because when you talk to people outside of here, they now, like outside of Nebraska, that don't cover, like don't cover Nebraska football or aren't closely following it. They just kind of shrug their shoulder, shoulders and say, oh yeah, they were supposed to do that without knowing 
some of the stories there, right? Like not knowing how stressed out people were about landing Chris Hickman and Nick Henrich mm-hmm. for most of that product or most of that process, or not knowing that Iowa was actually Ethan Piper's first offer. And he's on the record saying that he was going to go to Iowa if not for this staff coming in and rededicating efforts to recruiting him. Um, like you got to be able to, you have to be able to lock those guys down, but you also have to have a plan in place and be able to connect with kids, right? Like as I think about that Noah fan situation is that was two staffs here that messed that up the Polini staff and the Riley staff both messed that up because they both had shots at him you know the whole I want you to be a defensive end and no okay now you really want to play tight end like and in the end in the 11th hour trying to change that like I feel like this staff would have had a much better plan from the beginning I think it's also staying committed to the kids through a little bit of adversity because I think if Chris Hickman becomes what they think Chris Hickman is going to become the stories about what Barrett Rood was able to do mm-hmm. with him, I think like those will be pretty well known. Yeah, and notice it, recognizing one of the things that Barrett in particular did well during this recruiting cycle is knowing that, say, Nick Henrich and how you recruit him, though they're like good friends and teammates, recruiting him and recruiting Chris Hickman are two totally separate situations like mm-hmm. you don't do that the same <laughs> you know and it sounds again like common sense but it's not always common it's not the same as then recruiting Ethan Piper or Garrett Snodgrass or Garrett Nelson like all of those situations are a little bit unique and it's not we're just going to roll out a scholarship offer and expect you to take it because you're in Nebraska it's actually paying attention to them um, and valuing them in your class yeah well, common sense would say that a 24% three-point shooter doesn't take threes, but uh, it doesn't always happen. I'm okay with that when he's <laughs> playing the Lakers, so we hit them last night. Let's talk a little uh, Nebraska ball stuff, because there was a big game Thursday night against Michigan State. Um, I, reaction to that game, um, like, this was the number six team in the country. Mm-hmm. Like, they've won 19 straight, now 20 straight Big Ten games. Like, they were not just—it wasn't just going to be one of those things where you roll the ball out at Pinnacle Bank Arena, and because you're at home, you're going to beat this team. Yeah, you were going to have wilt, to earn yeah. it. Like, it—but it, I—there was a lot of people that were a lot more upset than I thought they were going to be. And I get—like, Tim Miles had a comment. They kind of lost heart in the second half when Michigan State got it to 7, and then that bumped it up to 12. And I— the ending was weird. They closed, and they only lost by six, but it was a 10-point game with, like, 40 seconds left. And I'm going down to, to update my gamer, and then I look back up, and they're at the free throw line, and it's about to be a four-point game. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Right. Um, it, it, but Michigan State, like, they didn't get tired. Izzo said they didn't get tired. They just, like, stopped playing. And, like, they were up 10. There was 40 seconds left. Nebraska couldn't hit a shot. Like, that stuff happens. And so the the ending kind of is deceptive the final score is deceptive but i didn't i didn't come away from that game feeling bad about nebraska i came away from the iowa loss feeling real bad about mm-hmm. nebraska i did not come away from this game feeling bad they just missed a ton of shots like how did you feel did you how, how much of the game did you watch and how did you feel i watched the game okay. um uh, my fi- <sighs> It's weird because the way that you described that is kind of interesting to me because I was I came away from the game my snap judgment was like disappointed mm-hmm. that they lost and then I had to step back and realize that that's a legitimate championship contending mm-hmm. Michigan State team and it's yeah. what were they sixth right yeah going into the game um, like they're a really good basketball team and so I'm thinking like why. Why would I have that expectation? And it's really because they were playing at home. Nebraska's playing at home. You knew that the fans were going to be keyed up, and they were. Um, and it's, it was another great environment and a great showcase for Pinnacle Bank Arena Nebraska fans. But because of that and how well they play at home, you just kind of – it's not that I expected them – like, it sounds weird to say that I almost expected them to win that game, but I almost did. I, I, I think a lot of people did. Like, and so it's, and so when, but does that also ultimately, does that mean that the expectations around Tim Miles' program have shifted? And is that a good thing for him? Yes. Well, his, his reaction, uh, I think it was Chris Bazin from the Lincoln Journal Star asked him, are, are there moral victories? And Tim just said, no. Absolutely not. I'm, mm-hmm. We are. I, I'm utterly mad and disappointed. Was his quote, and he said the team felt the same way too. That signals that yes, the expectations have shifted. Where in past in, in past years, like this is not a game anybody would have expected Nebraska to win. If you win it, yay, good for mm-hmm. you. That's a huge, huge like. Okay, now put us in the tournament conversation. 
Going into that game, they were already a tournament team. I said this on the radio before the game. Losing that game was not going to bump them out of the NCAA tournament field. They are an NCAA tournament team barring a collapse at the end of the season, which I don't think will happen. Mm-hmm. Winning the game impacts your seeding. You could be like, you You win that game with the Creighton game that you have. They need to stop losing. And the Clemson <laughs> yeah, went on the road and the Indiana went on the road. Like, you could be a four seed yeah. if you so win that and continue to continue to just like maintain. But losing that game, I don't think it hurts you. But the expectation now for them to win that game, for them, because they're at home, they have to win that game. That signals good things about the program. I don't like the fan base is weird. Like I've talked about this before. Like every single loss this season has been like the end of the world. Like, told, like have we have we actually talked about that on here? Because I have a theory as to why that is. We might have talked about it. I think it's because this is a football town, and I also think it's because everybody wants Miles gone, so every loss is like confirmation bias. I think that that's what it is. I think it's the confirmation bias about how you feel about Tim Miles every game. So a win means that, hey, he's look at what he's doing, and a loss means he should go. Like, And he's just in this weird position with the fan base in that way. He is. He doesn't have a lot of... he doesn't have a lot of cloud built up with the fan base. Mm. And I will say this. I was going to include this in my three takes. I started typing it, and then I deleted it because I thought it would get um, a lot of pushback. I think Tim Miles outcoached Tom Izzo last night. I mean, maybe. <laughs> so here's, here's my reasoning. Okay, Leah, Leah, hit me with this reasoning. <laughs> Izzo, Michigan State is an incredibly talented team. Yeah. Cassius Winston is maybe one of the best point guards I've seen all season long. Yeah. Um, he was phenomenal. They did not do anything that was outside of the scout that Nebraska had. They did not do anything that was outside of their norm or their comfort zone. They just rolled the ball out and played, basically. Nebraska, and and talent-wise, they were going to be able to beat Nebraska doing that. Nebraska was going to need to scheme some things up to try to slow them down, and I thought they did a good job of, of, you know, there was a play early where I think it was the the very first offensive possession Nebraska had. Glenn Watson got the steal off of mm-hmm. Michigan State's first possession, and he's running. And they they kind of had numbers in transition, but it was going to be like an iffy bat. They were if he drove the basket, he was going to be looking for a foul call. Otherwise, he wasn't going to make it. Mm-hmm. And he pulled it out, and they ran an offensive set, and they got a bucket out of it. And that stuff is coaching. That stuff mm-hmm. is Tim Miles saying, "Look, we cannot push it." every single time with this team because Michigan State ran Michigan State runs at one of the faster tempos in the conference they're, they're they run at one of the faster tempos in college basketball and they were going to want to turn that into an up and down fast break transition style game because they felt like they could beat Nebraska doing that. Nebraska is really good in transition and could have played that game. It probably wouldn't have ended well, but the fact that they committed to the we're going to play defense, we're going to play half-court basketball on offense, I think that was a Tim Wiles decision, and the fact that the, the team responded to it is is good. Um, the decision to move Glenn Watson off of Cassius Winston mm-hmm. and put Thomas Allen on him in the second half I thought was brilliant. Yeah. Thomas Allen really, really gave him some issues, and it was just it was a simple tweak. And sometimes it's those little change-ups mm-hmm. can throw you yep. off, yeah. And that, that threw him off. And they were out of bounds and, and, and sideline out of bounds and out of timeout plays that they ran offensively that was like Tim Miles is coaching his ass off right now. And I like I didn't get that same sense from Tom Izzo. Like I didn't I, – I mean, I, I think he outcoached him. Like I, I think Tom Izzo was just like, we're a better team. We just, you know, we're just going to do this. And he didn't take a ton of timeouts when Nebraska was making runs and he just let his team play through things. And I think Tim Miles managed the game better. But the only now, let me say on the front, and I agree with you. Now, after you laid your case out, I agree with you. But could Tom Izzo not taking those timeouts? Tom Izzo basically rolling the ball out there and saying we can beat them. Isn't that that could also be construed as confidence in his team and knowing that they could go out there and, and win the basketball game? Like I don't sure, but he doesn't so, get credit for them winning then. I guess, yeah, that's true. That's true. So like, no, but because I, I think that, but I do think that that was in a, especially in a big game situation where a lot of people were watching. I thought that that was Tim, one of Tim Miles's better coaching performances in recent memory. One hundred percent. So yeah. let's let's look at this. Nebraska shot thirty three percent from the field for the game. James Palmer Jr. up until the last minute was three for sixteen yeah. shooting. Glenn Watson was three for thirteen. Thomas Allen three for seven. Isaiah Roby three for eight. He fouled out in 29 minutes, only had six points. Isaac Copeland was five for 12. Looking at those numbers, 
What What do you think the score would have been? Yeah, just and Cassius Winston blowout. had 29 points and six yeah, assists. Yeah, I would have said it was a complete blowout. And they lost by six. And and like I said, the final score is deceptive. It was a 10-point game with like a minute something left, minute and change left. Mm-hmm. But they were within five. They were within two or three possessions. It always felt like they were always kind of in it. Yeah. 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 And they were they had leads in the first half and in the second mm-hmm. half. They were in this game despite James Palmer not knowing how to shoot anymore and despite Glenn Watson not being – he hit big shots, but he wasn't able to efficiently produce offense. And if you show that box score to somebody without the score attached to the top and say, what do you think the final outcome of this was? They would say, oh, Michigan State beat them by double digits. Mm -hmm. Michigan Michigan State blew them out. They didn't. And that, that is where Tim Miles comes into play. I think that I think you're correct, and I think that we do have to because it's so easy um, to beat up on Miles when things go poorly. I do think mm-hmm. that it's worthwhile to note that he did do very well, and it's going to hurt a lot of people's. Uh, it's going to hurt a lot of people to be like, you need to give Tim Miles his credit for this yeah. game, but especially they, in they a do. loss, like especially they do. yes, but you, but yes, you do, you do. Hat, I'm going to do it. Hats off. Hats off. Okay. <laughs> um, do you think they're a tournament team? I do. I do, and it'll be really like I'm. A, I, I I do think they are a tournament team, and I want them to be a tournament team because I think it would be really fun to see that happen um, and see if they can win a game. Because <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that'll be like, and because and again, that will be a, a big talking point with kind of the Tim Miles detractors. Oh yeah, they got there, but they still can't win a game. Yeah, like that. So that'll be fun to see if they can and to see how they respond to that type of pressure because you're feeling the entire weight of the program mm-hmm. on you in that type of situation. That first game, it would be it. it it's not going to be a traditional round one of the NCAA. No, not at Nebraska. all. It's going to no. be so much, so much worse for them. But I think their ceiling is is. I think they could win two games in the tournament. Okay. I think they could be a Sweet Sixteen team. I think that's their ceiling. I don't think like offensively like. They just still unless go into Palmer, too unless many Palmer changes. Yeah, it just that still happens way too much um, to see the, for me to see them making a really deep run. Yeah. I agree with you. I think Sweet Sixteen, unless and I think you were about to say before I cut you off. I apologize. Unless Palmer just goes like full, you know, what that two thousand five Kobe or current James Harden. Um, well, well, I, mean, I, I said this are. on the radio before the game. I thought Nebraska was going to win last night, and I really did. I thought I had a good feeling going into the game, but I kind of hedged my bets a little bit and said they have to have a vintage performance from Palmer. They have to, like, they played Creighton and he had 30 and he started the game off really well and he shot really well from the floor. And I, he's got, I said, he's got to be in the 20s. He's got to be around 25. And if they don't have that, I don't think they've got a shot. And um, Schmidt asked me, like, does it have to be Palmer? Or does it, can he have an average game and get other people involved? It's like, if he's got 15, somebody else has to have 20. They have yeah, to have somebody a really good game. Somebody. It, yeah. And I think just the way that they play and the, the lack of bench that they use, like, they one of those starting five guys has to go for 25 for them to win significant games. We have a dog in our office, and the dog is now barking outside. So, thanks, Lola. I think that's probably a good place to end it. Probably. We, we, <laughs> we have a bunch of stuff posted to hillvarsity.com. Greg has referenced it a couple times, but Big Red Recon is live on site for everybody to read. Um, you, you have an official visitor list up, yes? It should be, yes. <laughs> by the time you listen to this, yeah, you, by the time you listen to this, it will be up on hillvarsity.com for you to read. Um, Jacob Padilla had padding the stats. He looked back at the offensive kind of woes um, from the Michigan State game. I got love and hate posted, so go read that. Um, pick up a copy of the magazine. Please. And yeah, and we will be back next week with another podcast. We will talk to you guys then. Thanks, guys. Greg, thanks for coming on. Thank you.